Hi, welcome to The Landscape, a Cranes Cleveland podcast. We are presented with support of Medical Mutual. I'm your host, Dan Paletta. Glad you can join us. The coronavirus pandemic certainly hit all kinds of economic sectors hard, including the housing market, but there were some unusual things that happened too with that market. Here to help us make sense of that is Ivy Selman. She is the co-founder and CEO of Zelman & Associates. They are a housing research and investment banking firm co-headquartered here in Cleveland. Ivy, thanks for taking the time to join us for The Landscape today. Thanks for having me, Dan. So let's jump back to March 2020. No one was quite sure what was going to happen, but Selman did take a strong stance on on housing markets, in particular housing building stocks. What was your thought behind that? Well, I remember when we were dealing with sort of trying to um, forecast what was going to happen, we certainly were expecting as we were seeing the economy shut down that we'd have severe job losses that would result in you know, plunging consumer confidence and therefore very weak housing fundamentals. But our housing stocks got completely bloodied. And we believe that the companies were going to remain as going concerns. And we recommended them on March 25th across the board because there gets to a point where everything's for sale at a price and they got to silly and stupid prices. But we were concerned that the housing market was going to weaken, but we thought the market reflected that risk already. How do you feel about those stocks now? We're cautious now. Um, generally, we think the market is too hot. Uh, we think that home prices are at a level of appreciation that um, continuing at running at double digit annual rates is really going to impact affordability. And a lot of it will be more not a consumer risk necessarily, as much more as it is the builders that are forced as a business model to keep buying new land to replenish the land that they're um, absorbing and therefore they're paying up for land. And it's one of those situations where you're buying land that you might not put into your theoretical manufacturing plan for two to three years, but you're paying values that are pretty right now inflated, you know, north of call it 25, 30% annual lot inflation. So we think that the profitability is going to get squeezed. And it's not a question in our opinion of if it's a question of when. One of the things that was already happening before the pandemic started, but seemed to really skyrocket is this notice of what you call the great American shuffle. So to where American shuffling? Well, really for the past decade, from 2010 to 2020, we saw um, the red states predominantly gaining share at the expense of the blue states. Not not entirely, but you think about migration to um, you know areas that are, um, think of Texas and, and Florida, Utah, Idaho. Idaho is a big hot market, Nevada, Arizona. All of those markets were growing twice or even almost triple the national average of household growth. You know, our great state of Ohio, while only growing at 3% over that that time frame, and those numbers are estimates because the decennial survey, which was done during the pandemic, just was released a few months ago. So I would just say that the 3% seems like a reasonable estimate right now, but that is subject to change. But whether it be New York or Connecticut, a lot of states that have higher cost, higher taxes, we're seeing more people migrating to more affordable markets, frankly. And that, and and when COVID came to fruition, it just it just accelerated that on steroids in the perception of not necessarily leaving the state, but leaving more urban to suburban because the migration out of states during COVID really wasn't that more material than in what it's been on the prior 10 year period. When you look at the number of people through a change of address through zip code, zip code data. I find it interesting because we had this whole period, especially here in Northeast Ohio, where the constant talk was, let's try to get as many young people as we can to get them to move downtown, to fill up downtown. And now it sounds like in some respects, a lot of them are bailing out to go back to the suburbs. Is that correct? Is that a good way to describe it? Well, I think that that was also occurring. So for the past seven years, we've seen a migration out of um, uh, the core urban markets to suburbia. And that's really a function of lifestyle. As millennials being a very large um, generation, 
you know, we kind of estimate to be 75 million, those born between 1980 and 2000, when they get to the point in their life where they're cohabitating, getting married, then having children, they require more space. So over the last several years, home ownership rates, which troughed in 2016 at roughly 62%, are already now back pre-COVID 65%. So it's not a new phenomena. Again, it's now being viewed to be more magnified. And I also think there are a lot of people that bought homes in the suburbs that may choose to live or keep their, their downtown apartment and maybe uh, return back to apartments. And maybe New York City I'm thinking of because you know maybe that's not the case in Cleveland. But that's sort of a natural process of you know one's life to change shelter based on inflection points of lifestyle, or I should say milestones within their lifestyle. This is The Landscape, a Crane's Cleveland podcast. More of our conversation in just a moment. But first, a word from our partner, Medical Mutual. COVID-19 plunges into this economic downturn, yet there was some boom in the housing market. I think for those of us who are amateurs, that doesn't sound right, like, like that shouldn't happen. So why did it happen? Well, I think that there's, um, think about the number of people that were unemployed during COVID and the number of people that are still employed. So 160 million in the workforce. And, you know, we had tens of millions of people that were out of work and recognizing that there were many that were gainfully employed that were scared that they didn't want to be in densely populated areas. They needed more space. Their children are now being forced to learn online. They themselves are being forced to work online. They need more outdoor space. And so people that didn't have that space, they were craving that and they were fearful that they would get the disease or worse, there was crime that was being inflicted in cities and and just unrest. So a lot of the forces that created um, the housing market to become center stage were really much a function of, of actual the fear that it invoked, as well as mortgage rates plunging. We should say that's the number one reason when you think about the free money. Um, why not take advantage of it? Not, why not buy a second home and think about the you know opportunity that a lot of people would otherwise not have been afforded if rates hadn't have gone as low as they did? So I'd say rates were the number one thing that allowed for that to come to fruition. I remember chatting with my girlfriend, who is a high-risk OBGYN, that lives in um, the orange area and they were thinking about buying a house and all of a sudden they, they never really did it, but they didn't want to buy a higher priced home and they thought it was too expensive. I said, not when you do the monthly payment with rates where they are, it's the same payment pretty much. You're paying you know, a lot more you think in absolute, but when you look at the monthly payment and sure enough, they moved and they paid a few hundred thousand more than they wanted to initially, but then they realized it was pretty much the same payment. So I think that people today that that took advantage of of what was, you know, and is historic low rates capitalized on an opportunity that we may never see again in this country. We'll see. There's the big inflation deflation debate and rates may never go up. And but that's uh, not necessarily what you want to talk about today. So we'll 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 go on from there. Well, let me ask you, I mean, certainly it looks like the economy is starting to recover and some people are starting to go back to work, but plenty of people did lose their jobs and are in yep. financial straits. Is there any concern about a, a possible foreclosure, another foreclosure crisis of any kind? You know, I think that we've got today initially when forbearance was first in, implemented by the federal government in the midst of the shutdown, um, it wasn't those people's fault that lost their jobs in the midst of the shutdown. So I think it really was important that they provided people a lifeline and that forbearance program has been extended for an additional six months that expires at the, in the midst of September. I would just say that roughly right now, about 2 million people are in forbearance. And prior to, um, let's say back in this time last year, they, there was more than 4 million. So the numbers are down substantially. A lot of those people though are um, more skewed to FHA um, borrowers than Fannie Freddie. I do think that some people, cause they put such a little down payment 
and you're already in the hole when you have to pay a, a realtor commission that you're recognizing that you might with the loans that the payments that you've missed, there might be some people that are that might be foreclosed. I don't know that I'd call it a crisis when the level of inventory in the United States is at an all-time historic low. And there's a difficulty in getting new land or sorry, new supply to the market through the new construction market. And that has a lot to do with constraints around municipalities. So there is a lot of bottlenecks that will mitigate the risk of any real t- home price correction, I believe. But I do think that one builders and just anyone in the development side of the equation will see some margin compression. But I don't think the consumer is going to feel it if people, unfortunately, of those 2 million people in forbearance or those that are you know, struggling, I think even if some of them have to be foreclosed, I don't think it's going to have anything even reminiscent of the great financial crisis. How about rising building material costs? How much of that is a concern to this sector? Certainly things like everything seems to be going up. And I keep hearing from people who are involved in the building world that they're having a hard time getting supplies. Um, it's hyperinflation right now. It's very disconcerting and it's not even, you know, inflation to the point where, you know, you're talking about excluding lumber that everyone's well-documented that's now correcting, but it's call it hover futures around a thousand dollars board feet, you know, historically call it, you know, in the 400 price range, we got up to as high as 1600 board feet. So putting lumber aside, you know, we have a building product survey that we aggregate nearly 150 billion of manufacturers, distributors, and retailers across the country. And we cover probably 30 categories. So you take, for example, um, drywall up 40%, uh, flooring up 15%. We're talking from the beginning of the year. And price increases are coming. Roofing, insulation, faucets, every single category. And a lot of those that are sourced from China, which a lot of product are sourced from China, the containers and the cost of those containers to get here have tripled. So there's just tremendous pressure, which is one of the reasons why the builders... And anyone that's in the for sale market is being forced to continue to raise prices to the consumer because they have to cover their costs. And if they do what we call a dirt sale, which means they sign, someone signs a contract and says, I'm going to pay you, call it $400,000 for this home. And the builder says it's going to take me about a year to build it or six months to build it, whatever the time frame, depending on the price point. Then a year later, now it's $400,000 and the builder can't get 400,000, but even though it should cost or the cost has gone up by a hundred and the consumer is going to still pay 300. Although we are hearing stories of builders reneging on contracts and reselling houses um, and finding a little tiny clause that apparently legally allows them to do so. We've heard builders are actually offering some consumers a a price tag to get out of contracts. Like we'll give you $15,000 if you don't move forward. So there's so much problems with that backlog being extended. So they'd rather not do dirt sales. So we survey several hundred builders that equate to nearly 20% of the new home market. Just for context, the publicly traded companies represent 42% of the market. The, the, the ones that we're surveying, 40% won't even do a dirt sale now. There are many builders, two thirds of the builders that we survey are limiting the sales in the communities they have open. And the ones that are doing any type of activity, they're speculating. So they're building a home so they can control those costs, Dan. And therefore, they know what their costs will be when they finish construction. But then we, we may have a problem where affordability will have been pressured and maybe they'll have inventory that maybe is too expensive for people to buy. So it's not an easy solution. It's quite complex, actually. And I, I, don't, I don't know that I would be comfortable myself if I was starting construction on a home. I would be waiting right now. How profound will it be when the Fed finally decides to raise interest rates? Is there a mortgage rate that'll actually show us that there's a slowdown or 
Oh, absolutely. I think the music stops at 4%. I think it starts to really slow at three and three quarters. And I'll tell you why. When you look at the backlash of a refi boom that this country's experienced, and you look at the number of homeowners that have a mortgage rate not at 4%, but below 4%, 60% of homeowners have a mortgage. So think about you or I, if we're in a house and we're fortunate to have refied or bought at 3%, and now we have to pay three and three quarters or 4% to do a move up, and all of a sudden you have to pay double or you have to pay, sorry, double digit home price inflation, the cost for you could be so much more significant that it just disincentivizes you to move. Home improvement could do well because we do have an aging stock. That's one thing about Ohio and other dense markets that aren't seeing household growth. A lot of those, um, really the states that are east of the Mississippi have a stock well north of the national average of 45 years. But I do think that the um, disincentive to move and people seeing that rate go up is going to be a real sticker shock. It's going to really slow the market. We saw it happen in 18. Mortgage rates went up from four to five and, and the music stopped. And it was only when rates came back down. But that, you know, even the Fed can't control the long end of the curve. So they can if they start doing yield control, uh, yield curve control. And there are people like myself that speculate that right now that they're buying long dated securities, long dated treasuries. Um, but they're really, they, they've, they've taken off their public website the delineation of what they're buying between treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. And it's disconcerting, but they, they're now, they changed their language that they're buying at least $120 billion a month, and they won't say what, how much they're buying. So we're concerned that the Fed is the bartender at this raging party, that everyone's already been overserved. And we're going to, you know, we have to eventually, you know, there has to be volatility. They're, they're trying to not allow volatility. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox because that's uh, not a housing discussion, but I certainly think that there's risk if rates go higher. How about the apartment building boom? Here in Cleveland, if you want to live downtown, your choice is pretty much you have to live in an apartment. There's single units available. Everybody's building apartments. Is that going to continue or is that, do you think that may slow down? Well, I think they, that had already been the case pre-COVID. So the apartment market benefited from from the perception that people only want to live downtown. They want to walk to work. They want to have everything walkable and that people didn't want home ownership anymore. So I think that the backlog today, and I don't think, I know, the backlog of units that are under construction are at multi-decade highs for multifamily. But I do think that multifamily becomes more compelling as a choice for people that are leaving their parents. So you're still going to have people that are, you know, at an age where they're not ready to start a family. And so there's going to be a need for apartments. It's just a question of if the pricing of those apartments might be under pressure because there's more supply coming. So where rents were going up for a long time, now rents are under pressure, creating a more affordable, attractive alternative. But, you know, household growth coming out of those young adults that are living with their parents or didn't go to college, post-college graduation. So it's all about where you are in your in what age cohort you're in and, and what milestone in your life you're at, what point you're at. So if you're someone that just finished your four-year degree and you want to be in Cleveland, you'd rather be downtown than living out in Beachwood or you know where we are in Moreland Hills or Orange. You want to be downtown where everything's going on. Ivy Zellman joins us today for The Landscape, a Cranes Cleveland podcast. We're presented with the support of Medical Mutual. I'm Dan Paletta. Ivy is the CEO of Zellman and Associates. Ivy, I know at one point, I'm, I was curious, are you still an advisor to the Laurel Investment Club to, for young people? Well, we don't have school right now. I was. I would I'd say that, yes, I would continue to do so. So, um, But I have a few of my uh, mentees that graduated and um, are now freshmen in college. It's been a tough year for everyone graduating and or 
um, going on to college as freshmen. So um, I'd like to be still involved there. Absolutely. The reason I ask is, and I'm going to climb on my soapbox. <laughs> we all have to take two years of algebra. And sometimes I think to myself, those of us, I've never used algebra. I have to admit in the broadcasting career that I've had, I think I would have been much better with a financial class, like something like that. Do you think the financial literacy will ever become a bigger part of a high school or college curriculum, high school in particular, I think? You know, I think it, it is and, and will continue to accelerate. I think that, you know, the private schools have the ability to provide um, more assistance from families, I think. But generally speaking, I, I myself started doing some financial literacy seminars and um, doing them in person. It might be something I'll go to a YouTube, but I think it's really disconcerting, not just for young adults, but even just hardworking people that don't have a lot of knowledge about the stock market that are intimidated by it and to sort of better educate people on real wealth creation. It's a great book written by Morgan Housel called uh, Psychology of Money. Highly encourage everyone to read it because if you don't know about the stock market, it's kind of like, I don't think anyone wants me to do brain uh, surgery on your brain. You know, we, we have expertise and people think they, you know, that the, the stock market is just a casino. And I think you can actually be an investor in index funds like the S&P and that you can understand that money compounds and it's a real wealth creator. So if you're not in the market, it, it really is a disadvantage to create long-term wealth. So I'd love to educate not only young adults, but everyone who's struggling out there and working hard to how to create long-term wealth. Let's get back to the housing for just a couple more questions. We keep hearing about iBuyers. What kind of effect do you think they'll have in the Midwest? Not much, actually, because um, the iBuyers, which is the um, term used to describe instant buyers, which are providing um, within a few days, uh, they provide an offer to people that are contemplating selling their homes after their algorithm and a virtual tour tells them what they think the, the, the iBuyer, what the house is worth. But they tend to stay in markets where there's population growth. And there's more um, incremental household growth. And so I think, unfortunately, the Midwest is not at this point on their radar. Doesn't mean it won't be over a longer period of time. But right now, I think that the nice part about it is it creates liquidity in a market that tends to be pretty illiquid. At the same time, it's a better experience for the consumer. But in a seller's market where you get multiple bids, you don't really need an iBuyer. But in a buyer's market or in a balanced market, and thinking about, I'm a mother of three children, and thinking about getting the house clean and making sure you're not there. I mean, it's just the amount of friction that is involved in the process of selling your home is mitigated and 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 improved dramatically by an iBuyer. Now, can the iBuyers, are they going to be there when the market turns? Or are they going to continue to buy even if home prices are not accelerating or they're not making as much money? I think the business model would suggest there's some longer-term risk but it's, it's early innings right now. So we have a, um, really two or three public companies now that are involved in the space. And I think that it's a good consumer experience if you're getting a, a fair price and you're willing to you know, not go through the process yourself with a realtor. Because the realtor is also a very important part of the equation. The realtor educates you, provides you a lot of support through the process. My sister is a realtor. And I can tell you that realtors work really damn hard. Sorry for the language. It's, it's not an easy process. And so a lot of people do need handholding as opposed to the iBuyer coming in. I think it's just another tool in the toolbox that's afforded to a consumer to have another choice. Selman Associates recently announced it's being acquired by the commercial real estate finance company Walker and Dunlop Incorporated. What led to that deal and how does your role change? What's going to happen here in the next year or so? 
Um, actually, it kind of happened um, really by chance because I was invited by Walker Dunlop to be on a webcast that they started in March of 20 during the pandemic. Willie Walker and I, the uh, chairman CEO, um, have known each other for about a decade. Just uh, he's presented at my housing. Somebody asked me if I would do um, a webcast that he now does every Wednesday. I joined him in August of 20, and I had um, a lot of positive feedback, a lot of leads to my website. And we're, we had been prior to selling to Walker been a model line business selling just to the institutional investment community. And I had been strategically trying to broaden reach my reach to other parts of the um, end markets that would care about housing, whether real estate, anyone in real estate, corporate America, anyone touching real estate in any way should care and want our research. But we didn't have a marketing department. We had one person. We never had a market, even though we have a strong brand in the institutional world. So I was thinking, you know, I'm going to ask Willie, maybe he'll want to you know, maybe we can talk about utilizing his sales distribution and maybe helping us expand what we call as our TAM, which is the addressable market. And one conversation led to another. And um, here we are um, now selling a majority stake to them. And I think that the good news is we had one person in marketing who's still going to be with us. No one lost their job. It, we're really an autonomous business unit. And now we have 35 people in a marketing department. We have technology. They're a publicly traded company. They provide resources. And frankly, I don't have expertise in a lot of the things that I was being forced to try to maneuver and navigate. So I feel really fortunate to be a part of this organization and this next chapter in my journey. I'm really excited about it. So I have no plans of going anywhere and I keep doing what I'm doing. And right now it's pretty exciting time. So whether we're analyzing the housing market or what we can do together and how we collaborate, I'm, I'm looking forward to that challenge. And I'm also excited to say I'm writing a book. So I'm almost done with the book and it's really about um, most importantly, I really am inspired by paying it forward. And I want to do more to help people have and obtain um, what they need to be successful if they're choosing to choose a career in finance and they're interested in, in going, um, trying to find a job on Wall Street and helping them navigate. That's something that I do a lot of speaking at various universities like Ohio State or Miami of Ohio. And, you know, over the course of my career, I had one ninth grader at um, Hathaway Brown that I presented, it was actually called the Financial Center or the Finance Center. And um, I said to everyone in the room, I said, anyone who wants to follow up with me, um, please contact me and give me my phone number. And only one young lady did. Her name's Amanda Young. And she's a rising senior at Miami of Ohio. And she's invited me several times to speak to the women in finance. And my daughter goes to the University of Miami and I've spoken to the University of Miami Business School. So I, I'll, I love to do that. It gives me a high because I know if someone's passionate, I'm interested in helping them. And there's unfortunately not that many men and women that really take advantage of people that want to be there to help them. And it's okay to ask for help. And so that's something that I'm excited about. Well, you have a standing invitation when the book is published. You're welcome to come back and join us again <laughs> on the landscape. Thank you. Appreciate it. Ivy Zellman, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Dan. CEO of Zellman & Associates. She joined us today for The Landscape, a Cranes Cleveland podcast. We are presented with support of Medical Mutual. On behalf of our producer, Cody Smith, I'm Dan Paletta. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk again soon.